0: Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together, we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead. Our question this week is related to an earlier sentencing commission confidential question about the independence of the ethics and compliance officer. The question is, doesn't the Department of Justice require independence? This question comes on the heels of many settlements over the last few years, particularly in the pharma space, where the Department of Justice either suggests or directs that an organization implement a completely independent compliance and ethics function oftentimes specifically suggesting or requiring that that compliance function not be associated with the legal department or any other function within the organization. An example of this, uh, and there are many, is the Genzyme Corporation settlement from last year, last August. Quoting from that, just to give you some flavor, "...the compliance officer has the authority to exercise independent judgment in assessing compliance-related matters. The compliance officer has authority to seek advice from independent legal counsel and other outside experts when appropriate. The compliance officer is authorized to report any issues of any kind directly to the officers and directors." that gives you some pretty wide-ranging independent authority as a compliance officer. So in that settlement, and settlements that are similar to that, again particularly in the pharma space, the Department of Justice seems to be stating a preference for an independent, in bold terms, broad terms, compliance office that is not reporting to anybody within inside the organization. While some of these settlements have been pretty specific about the organization and structure and independence of the compliance function in organizations for organizations moving forward, the Department of Justice hasn't come out with a blanket statement about the independence or necessity of independence for compliance officers. And I think it's worthwhile to kind of take a look back at the history around this particular subject because while we in the compliance space understand the importance, particularly in certain situations, of having complete independence, and while there's definitely a move in that direction, broadly speaking, to try to encourage and increase independence of uh, compliance and ethics operations and individual compliance and ethics officers, That hasn't always been the case from the perspective of the department. If we go back to the sentencing guideline amendments of 2010, one of the key focuses of those amendments was increasing the independence of the person or persons responsible for the day-to-day operation of the program. Increasing access to the board of directors or governing authority, encouraging resources, encouraging authority, generally speaking, within the organization, discussing specifically access on an annual basis and access when there was criminal conduct or potential criminal conduct. Some very specific things were added ultimately in the 2010 amendments of the sentencing guidelines that we discussed in a prior podcast about independence of the compliance and ethics officer. So while the settlements that we're seeing from the Department of Justice in these non-prosecution and deferred prosecution agreements, for example, oftentimes talk about independence and sometimes delegate specific independence for the function, if you go back to March 22nd of 2010, while the amendments to the sentencing guidelines that I was just discussing were being debated. There's a letter to Judge Sessions, who was at that time the chair of the United States Sentencing Commission from the Department of Justice. And on page 21 of that letter, it's a public comment letter, you can find it on the Sentencing Commission's website if you're interested. Department staked out a pretty different claim about what their expectations were regarding reporting and independence. And this is a quote, the department further believes that the commission's proposal would be improved if it encouraged direct reporting by compliance program managers to the organization's general counsel, in addition to the board of directors. In the department's experience, the company officer whose involvement in the decision-making process is most likely to result in a corporate acknowledgement of wrongdoing and cooperation with the government is the organization's general counsel. That might sound sort of odd to the compliance professional these days, where independence is more and more about breaking free of the legal office or general counsel. And I certainly think it's a different perspective from what you see in some of these settlements over the last six years since this uh, position was staked out. Now, we don't have from the department yet an absolute endorsement of independence in all situations. It's very, very situation-specific and has to do with individual cases. Again, it's been seen most frequently in the pharma space. But I think it's a trend that we might see continuing on. But if the question is, doesn't the Department of Justice require independence? Right now I think the answer is at least a tepid no. I think it's uh, specific to the circumstances uh, that the organization finds itself in, and certainly the best practices within certain regulated industries is trending towards complete independence. I think that's very clear. But as far as a requirement, that hasn't happened yet, and the history shows that there is some movement away from seeing general counsel or chief legal officer as the compliance gatekeeper within all organizations. I think that's a good thing. I think that there's an acknowledgement by the department that's very clear, particularly with the appointment of Wei Chen as the in-house compliance expert in the criminal division of the department. There's a clear acknowledgement by the Department of Justice that this is a profession that is separate and apart from the legal profession or the general counsel's role within an organization. That's pretty clear, and I think that's a good thing. So if the question is, doesn't the Department of Justice require an independent ethics and compliance officer, it's, well, it depends on what sort of organization you are and whether you find yourself in uh, a DPA or NPA situation. But generally speaking, I think the movement is positive as far as independence, no matter whether your role is dual hat general counsel and compliance officer or compliance only. I think it's a positive thing, and the department has definitely made some movement over the years, and it's important to understand that evolution, but there's no absolute requirement from the Department of Justice that the compliance program or the compliance officer be completely independent. If you have a question you want answered on the podcast, be sure to submit it on ComplianceBeat.com. Now, here's the upshot. The upshot today is whether you're dealing with the Department of Justice or some other regulatory agency or outside stakeholder who is investigating the independence of your compliance and ethics function, it's less important that the function itself or the compliance officer be independent of the legal department or some other organizational responsibility within the organization. It's more important that they have the tools that are suggested in the sentencing guidelines, that they have authority, that they have resources, and that they have access to the governing authority on a regular basis. Today, we have three questions with Bill Brown. Bill is the Chief Compliance Officer of the Knights of Columbus. Bill joined the Knights as Chief Compliance Officer in December 2010. As CCO, Bill oversees compliance, audit, risk, and security and reports directly to the Chief Executive Officer and the audit committee of the board of directors. Between 2000 and 2010, Bill served as both an assistant United States attorney and assistant attorney general in Connecticut, prosecuting a variety of state and federal criminal and civil cases. Since 1992, Bill has served with distinction as a judge advocate in the U.S. Marine Corps and currently holds the rank of colonel. Welcome, Bill. Hello, Eric. Can you talk a little bit about your career journey? How did you end up in your current
1: role? Of course. As you know, Eric, I came here to the Knights of Columbus from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Connecticut. I was a prosecutor there for about eight years or so. And prior to that, I was an Assistant Attorney General for the state of Connecticut as well. So I had a litigation and uh, prosecution law enforcement background. And before those two jobs, I was a judge advocate in the Marine Corps, joined the Marines in college, and you know they helped fund my way through law school. And uh, I was able to have the privilege of serving 10 years on active duty. And since 2000, I've been in the reserves, also serving in various roles as a judge advocate.
0: If you could go back in time and tell your younger self one thing before you became the chief compliance officer of the Knights of Columbus, what would that one thing be?
1: Well, in one of my last cases as an AUSA, uh, it was a corporate case. The defendant in the criminal trial was a corporation. And that's really where I got sort of an in-depth view as to what is corporate compliance, what are these programs supposed to look at, because the viability of this corporation's program became a very big issue at trial. So it allowed me to really dig into what what that was supposed to look like and what are the effective components and and so forth and so on. So after... Getting that insight, I knew, and, and joining the Knights of Columbus in 2010 as the Chief Compliance Officer, I kind of had a really good idea of what I wanted our program to look like. Looking back on it now, I would remind myself a couple of things. Number one, be patient, because there are certain things in life that you can't rush. And I think building a compliance program is certainly one of those. It has to happen in due course it has to happen along with many other things that are going along in the organization and it really just takes time secondly i would remind myself to keep it simple and really the simpler the better it doesn't have to be complicated it doesn't have to be fancy it doesn't have to be complex it just has to work and it has to work for you and your team and it has to work for the leadership and the employees and all the stakeholders of your organization if they don't understand it it won't be nearly as effective as it, as it can be. If they get it, if they're on board and they understand what you're trying to do, your values and so forth, then I think it can really add a lot to any organization. Wise words. And if you could
0: peer into your crystal ball a little bit for us, what are one or two trends in compliance and ethics that you think are going to be important over the next few years?
1: I would say a, a couple come to mind, Eric. Number one, I think, and it's really nothing new, but I, I, I'm hearing a lot of the uh, the folks that I respect and listen to, like yourself and others, talking about the effectiveness of our compliance and ethics training. It has to be it has to evolve, I think, and certainly has to to fit your organization, but I think a lot of very smart and experienced people are looking at it and saying, can we do better? Is there a way to do this? Perhaps instead of long drawn out courses, 45 minutes to an hour, is there a way to do more frequent training, but training that's shorter and quicker. So I think that's that's one of the trends that I see happening. I think uh, a lot more focus is going to be paid to the effectiveness and the style in which we, you know, conduct our training. The other one that that we've sort of jumped on here at the Knights is the concept of corporate integrity. And what I what I mean by that is sort of the more formal integration of the risk focused functions. So for example, here at the Knights, you know, we've we have formalized the relationship between compliance and ethics, risk and audit and our security services including IT security we've put those all in one group and i think you know some other organizations some particularly some larger corporations perhaps who have had some incidents data breaches or or what have you are going to that approach just really to be closely integrated and make sure you know you're all in the in the same boat rowing in the same direction well thanks and thanks for joining us bill thank you eric it's a pleasure Thanks for listening to Compliance
0: Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Morehead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.